under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is the Word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, so that that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning that the devil and all wicked, invisible powers and principalities hate verses like these, hate this word that has been read and that goes forth this morning because these verses highlight and focus on the supremacy of Christ over all things. And we are glad that Christ is supreme over all things. And Father, I pray that you would silence the enemy and any invisible power that would seek to exalt itself against the supremacy of Christ and the knowledge of Him that would seek to distract us from hearing and receiving and believing this Word that goes forth this morning, and that You would be victorious and that You would reign in our hearts this morning. Father, we bow our hearts before You, and for those of us who have trouble doing that, help us to do that. Help us to see you as wonderful and glorious and worthy to be praised and worshipped and loved and embraced and received. Help us with that. And help us to see you more clearly this morning in the power that you have and what you do for all who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. morning. <clears throat> Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Can y'all hear me? Is this working? Yeah, it needs to be up just a little bit. I was getting some thumbs. Either thumbs up that it's working or thumbs up it needs to be louder, whichever. You know, this morning I was uh, talking with someone out here who had a, had a, reading their Bible from one of these electronic ebook thingies, you know, and I just thought that's kind of strange, you know, to see that these days, someone reading a Bible out of, you know, not actually turning the pages and but, you know, I've actually seen preachers doing that now. It's getting kind of popular now, these, um, whether it be the iPad, is that it? The iPad or the Nook or the, what's the, the big one, the Kindle. You know, you're reading your, reading your Bible from that. And um, as much as I would love to have one of those devices, and, and I do have some electronic devices at home, what I've discovered in this day and age with all the electronics that are out there, that a lot of times when I get a device or purchase something, I don't even begin to learn how powerful it really is. I mean, I just kind of skim the surface on these things. And even with software, I have, I use um, uh, different types of software for, for sort of video production and different things. And, and, and Adobe puts out some really good software. One of them is Photoshop, and you may be familiar with it, and there's some other ones out there. And they're, they're notoriously complicated to learn because they just have so many features. So I just, and I can't stand going through tutorials, so I just kind of figure out what I can figure out and then just use it to the best of my knowledge, but it has a lot more power in it. I know that Photoshop has a lot more power in it than, than what I'm really tapping into. What I have in my possession 
can do a lot more than what I even realized it can do. And as we get to today's text in Ephesians, Paul shifts from this praise, this praise that he's been giving uh, to God, blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable spiritual blessing, to now he's praying for the church that just heard these things, that they would learn how to apply those blessings in their lives. So this section of the text today is a prayer for the Ephesian church, and it's for us as well, because we are the recipients of this letter just as much as the Ephesian church was. And this is a prayer for us to understand these blessings, to really get a comprehension of of what all has been done for us. Because I think we, kind of like me with my software, we kind of have a, 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 just kind of a cursory, just kind of a basic knowledge of, of the gospel, but we don't really go into thinking about how much it really has changed our life and how much it affects everything that we do. And so Paul, understanding that, prays for his listeners to have a better grasp of the gospel. As I mentioned last week, um, we started, we, well, we read the text, actually the last two weeks, we read the text that was verse 3 through 14, and it was one long sentence, if you recall, one long sentence, one long praise, one long blessing, um, that where, where Paul just praised the one who's blessed us so immensely. Now, verses 15 through 23, likewise, are one long sentence, and this time it's a prayer. So Paul shifts from blessings and benediction to prayer and intercession. And Paul has this thing with these really long sentences. He did it just a minute ago in, in uh, verses 3 through 14. Now he does it again. So I'm not sure his prayer would fit on one of our little blue slips. He just, he just explodes forth with this prayer, this benediction, I mean, this prayer and intercession for his people after this period of blessing and benediction with which he began the book. He turns his attention to his readers to the recipients of the letter, which, as I mentioned, includes us as well. And as I also mentioned in verses 3 through 14, it was God blessing us with every conceivable blessing, and we are blessing Him for that. And now God, Paul prays that God would open our eyes to understand the fullness of that blessing. Okay, so we see here that we bless God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing, and now we need to be, have our eyes open to understanding the fullness of that blessing. This passage of Scripture, as I mentioned, is prayer. It's part thanksgiving and part petition. It's part thanksgiving and, and part petition. Thanksgiving for what God has already done in them and a petition, a prayer of request that God would enable us to more fully grasp in our lives and in our day-to-day experience the implications of the gospel. So, Look at verse, the first verse here, Ephesians 1, 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So Paul has heard about their faith. He's heard about their love. Now, Paul planted this church, you remember. He was one of the ones who planted this church along with Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. We read about that as we were going through um, the, the book of Acts. So he planted this church, but perhaps he's been, been away from it for a little while. So he's having to rely on what he's heard, what he's hearing from people. Maybe Timothy has been bringing him a report, maybe others, about what's going on in the church there. And what he's heard, he's pleased with. He's heard about two things that's happening there in the church. He's heard about their faith, and he's heard about their love for the saints. He's heard about their right belief, and he's heard about their right living. A lifestyle of love cannot be divorced from a heart of faith. They go hand in hand, and that's why he's thankful. I don't think Paul would be as thankful if he said, I've heard about your faith, but you guys really aren't loving on each other all that much. Or, you know, I hear you guys loving on each other there, but y'all aren't really placing your hope and your faith in Christ alone. He's, he's praising them, he's praising God for them and thanking God for them that they have both of these things going on in the church. Faith and genuine love for the saints. In any healthy church, that should exist. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Belief, right belief with works of love is real and genuine. And it's worthy of thanksgiving. Belief without works, well, it's nothing. Belief without works is nothing. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you have faith to move mountains but you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. Even demons can believe, right? Even demons can have right thoughts about God, right thinking about God. In that same passage, continuing where James left off after verse 18, he says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, if you just say you got all the right doctrine and you got it all right up here, but it's not coming out of you in love towards the saints in particular, but towards others in general, if it's not coming out in love, then you don't have any faith better than what the demons have. And that's pretty indicting to all of us, I would say. Let me pause here real quick and just ask a favor. Well, we only have one deacon right now. Mark, would you mind getting me a cup of water real quick? Um, because my voice is going dry, and I actually may sit down a little bit, guys. I have, if you guys have known me for a while, you know I have bouts of vertigo that come and go. And right now, as I was just saying that last thing, it came. <laughs> and I'm feeling a little bit dizzy. And so you guys are looking like, you actually look like a bigger crowd when you're spinning. So that's good. Looks like we got... Four sections of seats out here. All right. For Paul, our belief, our faith becomes praiseworthy and a source of thanksgiving only when it is accompanied by love. Conversely, love without faith is a worldly type of sympathy and compassion that's rudderless, baseless, without foundation to stand on. So the social gospel that's popular in the world today where you serve the needs of the hurting without serving the souls of the hurting with the gospel message is a type of works that's separated from, a type of works that's separated from faith. We don't want that either. So we have to have both in order to be a strong church. So Paul... In verse 16 says, I do not cease, after he's heard this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's prayer life must have been amazing. Because if you read through the epistles, he's saying something similar that to the, like that to everybody. I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying all the time. I don't cease to pray for you. I have you in my prayers constantly, is what he told Timothy. He has this constant praying now, this doesn't mean that every waking moment of his life he was praying for the Ephesian church, but it does mean that he has a pattern of being consistent and constant and committed to his prayer. His prayer life was simply stunning when we consider that he made the same type of commitment to almost every church that we read about in the New Testament. Paul was always praying for them, and he calls us to the same sort of prayer life, doesn't he? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And then at the end of this book, what, what, what's Ephesians 6 famous for? It's the passage of Scripture that's famous for what? The armor of God, right, kids? The armor of God. It's the famous section on the armor of God. But, you know, if you're like me, you sang songs about the armor of God, maybe even made little armors of God or something when you were a kid, and you did all that. But I think a lot of times we fail to take that passage all the way through to its completion because when you get to Ephesians six eighteen, which is absolutely vital to spiritual warfare, this is what Paul says. Praying... At all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. In other words, if you are not actively praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're not praying for the saints, if you're not praying for the church, you are missing a vital piece of your spiritual warfare arsenal. I think we think of spiritual warfare as almost this sort of selfish thing. Here I am with my shield. I'm all bunkered up, ready to fight off Satan's arrows that he's shooting at me, which is certainly true. But Paul's picture of spiritual warfare, you are battling, and you're battling part of a bigger army, and you are to battle, and you are to hold up that shield of faith, you are to put on all that armor, and then you are to be praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not this self-centered thing. Spiritual warfare is a thing that, yes, it affects us personally, but it's something we are doing on behalf of the body. We are fighting for the faith. We are fighting Satan's schemes. So Paul, here, he's this, he is the example for us. He prays without ceasing, giving thanks and remembering these people, these people in Ephesus in his prayers. So he's heard, now listen to this, it says, he's heard what, of their faith? He's heard of their love? And who does he give thanks for their faith and their love? God. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I read a quote from J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and near the end of that quote, uh, he says something along the lines of, I didn't go back and look it up again, something along the lines of that everyone has a very strong view of the sovereignty of God when it comes to prayer, don't they? Because when you really think about it, we pray, we pray with an absolute confidence in the absolute sovereignty of God. That's how we pray. I mean, Paul doesn't sit here and say, I thank you for your faith, and I thank you for your love. He doesn't do that. He sees their love, he sees their faith, and he gives credit to God and thanks God for what he's seeing in them. He thanks God for what he's seeing happen in them. Paul doesn't thank them for it. He thanks God. Likewise, here in a second, Paul is about to pray for their increased understanding of God's blessing upon them. And he doesn't plead with them to get their act together and start thinking about things, things better. Instead, he pleads to God that God will do a work in them. And I think instinctively we all know this. Perhaps you're like me. Maybe, maybe right now you're praying for somebody in your life to come to faith. Maybe it's a brother, like my case. Maybe it's a sister. Maybe it's a family member. You're praying earnestly that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you may be doing things on the side to talk to them and share the faith with them, which you should be, but, or, or trying to argue a point of Scripture with them or whatever you might be doing to try to influence them, but ultimately you're praying that God would do a work in them. And so let's say they do come to faith in Jesus Christ, and maybe this has been the case in your life. A, a close relative has come to faith in Jesus Christ. When you hear of that, you don't walk up to them and say, Thank you for finally believing. You will say, Oh, I'm so excited about what God's done in your life. Thank God that he has given you faith. You know that. That's how you pray. When you hear of someone, when you hear of something happening, we all believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. So his prayer here of thanksgiving, uh, so he prays here a prayer of thanksgiving for faith, for their love, but also he lifts up a prayer of intercession. I do not cease to give thanks for you, and here's the intercession part, remembering you in my prayers. Remembering you in my prayers. This is a phrase that Paul uses in other epistles. It says, making mention of you would be the literal translation of this. Making mention of you in my prayers. Now that phrase, remembering you, doesn't help us see what it implies here. But when we use the actual literal phrase, which is making mention of you, it gives us a better idea of what's happening here. It implies that Paul is remembering each person by name as he prays for this church. Now, more than likely, he didn't know everybody that was there. The church has grown some since he was there. But as far as he can, he, he's remembering them by name. Perhaps this Ephesian church, probably this Ephesian church met in homes during the week, and maybe he's remembering home groups. So that home and that home, in that home. But the point is here, he's not just lifting up some sort of, oh God, bless the Ephesian church. It's a specific prayers. He's remembering them. When you pray for our body here, for our church, don't just, please, don't just say, oh God, 
help Harbors, and we need help. But pray for families because families need help. People need help. People need prayer. And so it's, it's not that hard. Get a list of the people in our church and just start praying for them, each one of them. Do it. I think we'll be amazed at how, how God will strengthen our church. That's spiritual warfare again. You're to be fighting on behalf of your brothers and sisters here in this room and be praying, making mention of one another. And that's what Paul does. He's interceding on their behalf. Now, let's look at what Paul is praying for. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. I'm going to stop it right there. Now, before I talk about what Paul's praying for here, notice again the same thing we saw in the passage from verse 3 through 14. The Trinitarian formula here. Okay? Look at this Trinitarian formula. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Now, spirit here probably isn't referring to the Holy Spirit in the sense that it needs to be a capital S in this text. But whenever you read about God giving us a spirit of anything, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work there making that happen. So again... We see, just like in the previous passage, that the gospel and all the outflow of the gospel, everything that the gospel, all the implications that come with the gospel, is a Trinitarian work. Now, let's look at the aim of Paul's intercession here. Paul is pleading with God that the church in Ephesus would have an increased grasp of what God has done for them. He's praying that the church will have an increased grasp of what God has done for them. Now notice, he does not pray for some second blessing here. Okay, a lot of times in church we're, we're praying for something extra. Okay, I got the gospel. I got that. I'm saved. Okay, God, I need this. And he's not praying for some sort of second blessing to come upon the church. He's not praying for their best life now. He's praying that they will better understand what they already have. Instead of spending our time asking God for more, I think what the solution is to a lot of our problems is to better understand what we already have in Christ. If we'll have a better grasp, a better understanding, a better enlightenment regarding the gospel and all of its implications into every little bitty inch of our life, it'll really begin to blow us away and it will change a lot of things in our lives. Believe me. You don't need a second blessing. You need to understand your first blessing first, which is the gospel blessing purchased for you on the cross by Jesus Christ. It's what we all need. A fuller understanding of the gospel and its implications that only God can make it happen by means of his Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 14, 26. When he, wanted, he prayed that the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send would teach us all things. And in John 16, 13, he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This spirit of wisdom, it's a spiritual truth that can only be spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 says, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. And we might understand the things freely given us by God. Sorry, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us understand the things that have been given to us by God. Continuing verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. Again, this is spiritual wisdom, not human wisdom. But taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So God, so Paul's prayer here for us is that we would have a spirit of wisdom. In other words, that, that we would begin to understand these spiritual truths which can only be imparted by the work of the Holy Spirit. He prays that by the Spirit's work, 
they, the church in Ephesus, and we might grow in our knowledge. And he wants us to have a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and in knowledge of him. Revelation implying that this is a divine act. He's not referring to a new revelation. Like Paul's not asking for the church in Ephesus to have some new revelation, but to better understand what God has already revealed of himself in the word. That they might see And the only way to see what God has revealed about himself is if God opens our eyes to see what he's revealed about himself. And knowledge, the word here, this Greek word epignosis, means full knowledge or a complete knowledge. So Paul is praying for a robust comprehension of God by the Ephesian church. He wants them to have a fuller knowledge of God. So back to my illustration, you know, we have these instruments and stuff that, or these, these software and different things we use. And I think many of us don't even know what these gadgets can do. And, and, and so if I were getting a job as a video producer, my boss may want me to get a fuller knowledge of some of the software I'm using. And Paul wants them to know more fully these truths. When Paul talks of wanting them to have knowledge, he's also referring to a concept of knowledge, which is a Jewish concept of knowledge, which, which means that it's not, not only intellectual, but also experiential. He wants them to experience God as well as know God. God wanted them to know in their minds the truth, and they wanted the truth to be, he wanted the truth to be confirmed by their experience. So this is the essence of his prayer, that we might know. It should be the aim of all believers, of all Christians, to know God more fully every day. There's some great books out there, Knowing God, Knowledge of the Holy, that have, that's their task, is to help Christians know God more fully every day. To know God more is to love Him more. To know God more is to enjoy Him more. To know God more is to desire Him more. To know God more is to be like Him more. And thus to know God more is to grow in our faith more. John Stott says that growth in knowledge is indispensable to growth in holiness. Indeed, knowledge and holiness are even more intimately linked than as means and end. So what Stott's saying, and I agree with him, is that the way we grow in our holiness and our Christ-likeness is to grow in our knowledge of Him and what He's done and what He's accomplished on the cross. Colossians 1.9 And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased Here's another church that Paul's talking about not ceasing to pray for. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk, here's why, so as, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's holiness. Again, Paul in Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So how can you turn back to what the world has to offer if you really know God? You can't. So holiness is important, and holiness is accomplished in part by a spiritual work in our hearts as we grow in our knowledge and understanding. Of God. Paul asks for increased knowledge in his own life. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so this aim, this goal of Paul's prayer is to, and to just drive home the point here. He, he gives us some more. He says in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know that you may know. That last phrase, that you may know, that's what Paul's getting to here. All of these things, spiritual wisdom, understanding, eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know. 
The eyes of your heart could also be translated your spiritual eyes or inner eyes. It's the part of you that receives spiritual instruction. And the fact that he wants your eyes to be enlightened or illuminated is, is, is the fact, is, is points to the fact that only God can do this. You can't enlighten yourself. Only God can open up spiritual eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let, line, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the word heart here, I think you probably already know this, but in the Bible when you, when you read the word heart, it represents the whole being, the full you. It consists not only of your emotions, that's what we think of when we say heart. It consists not only of your emotions, but also of your intellect. So Paul here wants us to know intellectually and know emotionally these things. What things? Well, that's going to be the focus of the rest of the text here. It's going to be the focus of the rest of our morning. And that's where your notes come in. Okay? So let's see if my slides will work back there. <clears throat> All right. That we may know. There's three things here that Paul wants us to know. Three things that Paul wants us to know. Number one is his God's purpose for us. Okay, when I say his, I'm referring to God's purpose for us. Matter of fact, in your notes it say God's or his. Anybody have the notes? Thank you. It's supposed to say God's. I don't know why I put his up there because I don't want you to confuse. This is not Paul's purpose for them. This is God's. So, as you read the slides that I hastily put together last night, obviously too hastily, please read God instead of his. God's purpose for us. Verse 18, that you may know what is, here's the first one, what is the hope to which he has called you, or his purpose for us. That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Paul wants his readers to know the purpose of our calling, the hope to which he has called us. Hope here is not some vague, wishful longing that something good can happen or for things to work out. Okay, that's sort of our thinking of the word hope. Because the way we use it in our English today, so you walk up to someone, they say, I'm feeling well. Oh, I hope you feel better. Or I hope your grandmother um, comes through the surgery well. Or I hope this, or I hope that. And it's just sort of this, it uh, doesn't seem to have any sort of certainty to it. But in the Bible, when we read about hope, especially hope that's found in the gospel, it's referring to something certain, something guaranteed by the Spirit of God's very presence in us. It is rock-solid expectation of what is going to come to those who belong to God, to His chosen, predestined, adopted children that we spoke of over the last couple of weeks. Colossians 1, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's rock-solid. The hope is certain and unwavering because it stands on the promises of a faithful God whose purposes and plans can never be derailed, can never be impeded, can never be revised in any way, form, or fashion. Our hope is ironclad because of His calling, the hope to which He has called you. Called or calling is one of Paul's favorite words in his epistles. Romans Eleven twenty nine, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's call is irrevocable. It's irresistible. It's irrepressible. God's rock, God's calling is a solid rock. That's why our hope is solid. It's effectual. It creates what it commands. God's call is unconditional. Thus it depends not on man's goodness, but on God's sovereign grace. God's call is part of a glorious chain of events initiated by God, carried out by God, sustained by God, which are certain because of God's promise to complete them. Let me read to you this glorious chain of events. Romans 8. Let's start in verse 28. Because of those of you who knew where I was going, you probably thought I was going to start in verse 29. But let's start in verse 28. Because a lot of times we divorce verse 28 from verses 29 through the end of that, verse, through verse 30. So here's what verse 28 of Romans 8 says, a favorite verse of many people, especially when we're going through tough times. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, called, there's that word, called according to his purpose. Now, why can't we divorce that from the rest of the text? Here's why. Because that means nothing if we don't understand what God's done for us. We may have some sort of misunderstanding that, that God's some sort of cosmic magician in the sky that can take all the bad and, and all the good and work it out. Like he's, okay, ah, okay, that bad, that good. No, it's not at all how it works. God is in absolute control from beginning to end. And everything that has happened between beginning and end, actually from eternity past, was preordained. God planned it out. Now, our minds can't fully comprehend that because we struggle. We struggle with, okay, responsibility. We, make, we sin, we fail, and yes, we do. And you are guilty when you sin. And there are consequences of our actions, of our moral choices. But God factored in all of that as well. All you got to do is read the book of Job to help you understand some of this. But here's, what, here's, the, here's the promise upon which Romans 8.28 is founded and connected to. Let's go to verse 29. How do we, how do we know all things are going to work together for those who are called? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Anybody in here have a glorified body? I don't think so. But you do have a glorified body if you're in Christ. It is rock solid. No question about it. You are on your way to glory. And we praise God that he's working out every single little detail in our life as part of that plan. He gets all the glory. And what peace that brings me to know in my life that I am part of his family and I am on a course in unalterable course that he has set. And yes, I mess up a lot and I grieve the Holy Spirit and I fail and I don't understand things and I have a hard time getting my mind wrapped around things. But you know what? I believe the text and that's where I stand. where I stand. I think had Paul wanted to explain it more or better for 21st century Americans, he would have. But he doesn't need to. It's right there. True, the Bible says in all sorts of places that we, are every, that we call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But our call, our call is a response to his call. God is the initiator Praise Him for that. Because if my hope depended on my ability to call, then I'm in trouble. Our hope is solid because He called, not because we called. Our hope is solid because He called. Because if, it's all, if I think it's all about my call, guess what? I begin to doubt my faith. But if I know He called, I have rock-solid assurance. 2 Timothy 1.9 God, referring to God, saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. His call was not random or aimless. It is filled with Christ-magnifying purpose he called us to something and for something. The whole New Testament breaks down and clarifies for us what we've been called to. 1 Timothy 6, 12 talks about us being called to eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We've been called to belong to and to be like Christ, to be conformed to the image of His Son as we already read in Romans 8. We've been called to holiness, to be holy as He's holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He has called us to freedom in Christ. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He has called us to oneness, to one body, to one race, to one tribe. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Ephesians 4.1 If we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility. It doesn't say if we walk. It just says walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We've been called to a community, to a priesthood, to a kingdom. First Thessalonians 2.12 You too walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And he's called us to glory. 1 Peter 5.10 The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you're feeling weak and down and you need restoration, you need confirmation, you need strengthening, look to your call. You've been called. You've been, and your hope is in Christ and it is unwavering. He's called us to a joy of eternal fellowship and union with him through Christ. Paul says, he continues in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What a calling. It's a done deal. God's calling is part of his purpose for us, and it cannot be undone. It cannot be overcome. And that's where our hope resides. Our hope Paul wants us to know this. It helps us with challenges in life when we know these things. 1 John 3, starting in verse 2, says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our purification, our holiness, our our ability to fight sin in this life is connected intimately to our hope of what God is going to do with us. God will finish what he begun. Philippians 1.6 is a favorite verse of many. It says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on that day of Jesus Christ. What great hope that is. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let me read that verse again. He who calls you is what? Faithful. He will surely do it. So as we're plodding along in this Christian walk, failing and struggling and trying to overcome our sin... We can get down and we can get disheartened because sin is so difficult to defeat. And if we're trying to do it in our own power, then we should be down and disheartened. But if we're relying on Him and we're seeking Him and we're trusting in Him and we know that He has got us on a path towards glory, that one day we shall be like Him, according to 1 John 3, then we press on and we fight and we kill sin with the weapons that God has given us. And we know that he is faithful. He will surely bring it to pass. He will do it. And so when that sin is overcome, you've got a sin in your life that has been a stranglehold on you. Maybe you've even defeated it for a while. And now it's come back and it's holding you again. When you defeat that, don't take any credit. He's the one that does it. He is the one who brings it to pass. What a hope. He's called us, and he will do it. Our hope is alive and unfaltering. The question is, do we know that? Do we know that? Do we know that here? But do we know it beyond here, and do we know it experientially? Do we live that? Do we really know God's purpose for us? It can't be exhausted. We can only grow in our knowledge of God's purpose for us. Second thing that we may know God's promise to us. 
So I'm a bit, I'm in a bit of a quandary here, just to be honest with you. We've, we're going a little late, and I won't be here next week to finish the sermon. So I'm going to truck on, all right? The meal down, the food downstairs can wait, right? All right. God's promise to us. Verse 18. What are, so here's the second, what are, there's, you know, what is the, the, the hope to which we've been called, but also what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now we spent a good bit of time last week talking about our inheritance, so I'm not going to spend too much time here other than to say we must grow in our knowledge of it. We must grow in our knowledge of it. This was Paul's prayer for us. Oh, how it will strengthen us if we will begin to get a more accurate understanding of what God really has secured for us in Christ Jesus. What his promises are to us, his children, the inheritance. It has been guaranteed, if you will recall, it's been guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in whom we have been sealed. And again, it's God's doing, not ours. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit that guarantees that we're going to receive an inheritance. Let me look at 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter ties all these three things that are in this passage together in, this, in his as well. To be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Again, there's that hope. We are being guarded by God's power to receive this inheritance that he has for us. In Christ, we have an inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. All that is his is ours. Our inheritance is the culmination and the consummation of what it is that we're hoping for. Our minds cannot even begin to comprehend what it is that awaits, awaits us. Therefore, these things must be spiritually comprehended. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet among the mature, this is a continuation of the passage I read earlier. Actually, it comes before that passage. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, it, but as it is written, here it is, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So we should be praying for the same thing that Paul said here that God, through His Spirit, should be revealing to us these things. These, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, as we begin to think about these things that God has prepared for His children. We therefore are to pray for one another and for our hearts, as Paul did, that the Spirit of God would intervene and open our eyes to see these things. I talked last week a lot about getting our eyes off of earthly things and onto Spiritual things. I think part of the problem in a church or in any family or any situation is that we don't pray for each other to have our eyes set on heaven. We pray for each other to, to fix that problem or to get over this or change that person's attitude or whatever else. We should be praying for one, one another as Paul is, that we would have a better comprehension of the gospel, that we'd understand our hope and our calling, and that in doing so, we would have our eyes fixed on heaven and understand our inheritance. Because if we begin as a church and, and, and as a family members or whatever situation you want to apply to this, if we begin to get our eyes on heaven and think about heavenly things and understand our inheritance in heaven, then the, the menial things that we'd like to gripe about here on earth become so much less important. And the things we like to fuss about in churches become a whole lot less important. Now there are some important things that you should fuss about in the church. But there is a whole host of things, secondary, or what's a word beyond secondary? Tertiary, yeah. That word, the whatever area, or whatever areas you want to go beyond that area. And the, the problem is we spend a lot of time, 
with our eyes fixed on these things, we begin to fight about these things. And I think for the unity of the church, what we should be praying for is that we all would have our eyes set on heaven and understand the glorious inheritance that awaits us. So Paul prays for them and he prays for us that we might know these things. And so like I said, we talked a lot about the inheritance last week, so I'm going to move on to the last point. Finally, that we may know, number three, God's power toward us. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We see another similarity here between this passage and the passage in, um, in uh, verses 3 through 14. Remember, 3 through 14 talk about our election in eternity past, the present reality of our redemption in Christ, and the future uh, greatness of the inheritance that's coming. Well, similar theme here. Paul's kind of following, he's, he's, he's praying that we'll understand those things. So same, similar thing. He talks about the past, that we'd understand the hope for which we've been called past, and then he wants us to understand our inheritance future. And this is present tense, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. It's present tense. This is the glue that holds the past and the future together, is that we understand the power that Jesus Christ has in our life now. To make sure we get the point here, Paul uses four synonyms for the word power in this verse here. So it's, it's what are the immeasurable greatnesses of his power toward us who believe according to the working. The word working is also another synonym for power. Of his great, that's another synonym, powerful, and then might, power. Again, all those are four Greek synonyms for the word power. So it could be what are the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the power of his powerful power. Paul wants us to get the point here that he's talking about power. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Paul wants us to understand that power has been unleashed on our behalf. He does not pray, if you will notice, that believers be given power, but instead that they will comprehend the power that they already have, that's already at work within them, that's already available to them. That's important. Paul is praying that they would understand what's already been done on their behalf and the power that's there. Power to live for him and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 To this end we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for you and every work of faith by his power. Power to overcome challenges to endure persecution, to live for Christ in these weak bodies. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. One of my favorite passages. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, this treasure is the presence of God, this forgiveness, this gospel truth, and this, this, this presence of the Holy Spirit in us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God has given us a spirit of, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he continues. Here's another one of those verses we like to just sort of rip out of context. Please practice the 2020 rule when you're reading verses. Go 20 verses before and 20 verses after. It'll give you the context of the, of the verse. Verse 8 of 2 Timothy. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So what's this power for? The power is for witness. You see, I think we have, we have problems in our life you know, I don't know, make up one. Uh, you know, oh Lord, I'm having to go to my grandmother's house and she makes these collard greens that taste like trash. Give me the power. You haven't given me a spirit of fear, the power of love and a sound mind. So I'm going to eat this food. What? Okay, that was a crazy example. 
But we, we have plenty that we can think of in our lives. Don't we? Where we just take some... Ta- what is the power you have? You have the power to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel, and to suffer for the gospel. And to be ridiculed for the gospel. And therefore you shouldn't be afraid. And I too often fall into fear myself because I'm afraid of what the world's going to think of me or what that person's going to say to me. What can their words do to me anyway? I should be trusting in the power that has been made available to me, that is with me, and that I have access to, to share the gospel. God is the one who has the power, not me. And therefore, he gets all the glory whenever we are able to share our faith in any sort of circumstance. You have the power. Have you ever wondered how some, if you read Voice of the Martyrs, there's plenty of those magazines back there. you ever wondered how people can endure the things they go through in the world? Just the tremendous suffering that is happening at this very moment to many of our brothers and sisters around this globe who are in intolerable pain. And all they have to do, all they have to do for the pain to stop right now is to simply say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I renounce Christ. It's all they have to do for the pain to stop. There's people sitting in hospitals all across the Atlanta area right now that are just begging for the pain to stop. They're pressing buttons to make the pain stop. And there are believers all around this world that have a button put right in front of them that says, press this button, deny Christ, pain's over. And they don't do it because of what? Not their power. First Timothy 2 Timothy 1, 7, power. That's the power. Power to persevere, 1 Peter 1, 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you're struggling to hold on to that hope, God gives you the power to hang on to the hope. Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The Christian life is a life of struggle and toil and perseverance. If you have not had to persevere in your faith through some sort of crisis, whether it be marital crisis or just a faith crisis, if you haven't had that, you will. And if you have had that, you understand what Paul's talking about here. Because he's the one that gives you the power to persevere. Power over death. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. We may, our bodies may die, but we will not die if we are in Christ. We have power over death. Power over the spiritual forces of darkness. Ephesians 6, as we've already mentioned, talks about that power. Okay, there's two parts I think we divorce from the armor of God. I already mentioned one of them, the prayer section, that we tend to sort of cut out of the armor of God. Here's the other part that unfortunately we cut out of the armor of God. At least I didn't memorize it when I was a kid. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. That's where we like to start it with the kids, right? We sing the songs, put on the whole armor of God. And we start right there in verse 11. But we forget to mention verse 10, which says that all that power that's contained within the armor of God, it is not yours. Don't even get it into your mind that somehow you can muster up the power to fight this spiritual warfare. The point is, in verse 10, that he is the one who has the might and the power to fight these battles on your behalf. And because of his strength and his might, Put on the armor of God. That power is what equips us to fight spiritual warfare. Oh, that we may know His power toward us. His purpose for us. His promise to us. His power toward us. Now, I'm going to breeze through this last part, but honestly, if I could, and Deemer, I'll leave this up to you next week. If you want to take the end of this text about the surpassing greatness of Christ and just lay that on everybody next week. I'll let you do it. But I'm just going to kind of summarize it here and continue on for this morning. 
Paul ends this passage by taking us through a succession of events that demonstrate and display the power of Christ. So there's a succession here. Number one, the resurrection of Christ. Verse 20. He talks about this power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is, our, this is the ultimate demonstration of his power in the universe. His power over death where our hope and our life resides. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. And God raised the Lord and, and will also raise us up by his power. His powerful defeat of death calls us and enables us toward Christ's likeness. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Christ is our power to walk a new life. If Christ's death, in Romans 5.8, is the ultimate demonstration of his love towards us, then Christ's resurrection is the ultimate display of his power toward us. It's his working. God did it. He accomplished the feat. So first, we see the resurrection. Then, the enthronement of Christ. So we see the resurrection of Christ. Now, the enthronement of Christ, continuing in verse 20. So God raised him up and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, the right hand means the position of authority and rule and privilege. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. So our power in this Christian life isn't just based upon the resurrection of Christ, because that's power in and of itself. But it's also based upon the rule of Christ, that he reigns, he's been enthroned. All things are under his feet. His resurrection has confirmed his enthronement as king and ruler. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, speaking of the resurrection here, Paul says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, all who belong to Christ, we're going to be raised. Verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We hear this, we read this over and over again in the New Testament about Christ's enemies being put under his feet. That's because in Psalm 110 we have a messianic promise that the Messiah would put all of his enemies under his feet. So we have the resurrection of Christ, the enthronement of Christ, and then the text ends with the headship of Christ over his church. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ rules over his body, the church. He presides over it, he directs it, he guides it, he gives it life. We can only do what the church is called to do because of his headship over us. If Christ were not the head, then, well, then the Great Commission would be unattainable. This imagery of body, where Christ is the body, it implies a few things. One, union with Christ. Two, obedience to Christ. And three, sustenance from Christ. Let me say that again. This image of a head over a body, it implies three things. That we're united with Christ. Number two, that we're obedient to Christ. Because the head leads. I heard a joke once. I don't usually throw jokes into my sermons, but I, I think that it helps us. No, I tell you what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to throw this joke in, because I'll tell you at the meal, all right? So sit down, I'll tell you a funny joke about a head. All right, now, he is our head. He, we obey him, we're united to him, we obey him. Number three, we're sustained by him. You eat through your head. So the image here is union, obedience, sustenance. Christ, who is transcendent over the church, his body is also imminent within it. And he fills it for the fullness of deity resides in Christ. And out of his fullness, he fills us, supplies us, keeps us for himself for all eternity. First, I mean, Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. First John 1, 16. And from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. God's purpose for the church is the full expression of his son through the salvation and the sanctification of his people. Now we could go, you could go into a lot more on that final text, and I'll leave that up to Deemer if he wants to do that next week. But I think what Paul's getting at here is he wants us to know these things. He wants us to know our calling and our hope, our purpose. He wants us to, to know the promise of this glorious inheritance that awaits us. He wants us to know the power of God that's been made available to us through the resurrection and rule of Christ. He wants us to know these things. And if we will grow in our knowledge of these things, if we will grow in our knowledge of these things, we will grow in our love for God, we'll grow in our love for people, we'll grow in our ability to defeat sin in our life. Unlike a silly application or a software or a nook that we may or may not ever have time to learn about and get full grasp of, unlike that, you can't, you can't waste your time not knowing more about God. Don't waste your life swimming in the kiddie pool when Christ has called you to go to depths of his grace that will just blow your mind away. And so that's what Paul's praying for us. And that's what he's praying. That's what I'm praying for Harbins as we continue to grow in grace here at this church. So let's close with a word of prayer. And let's close with a song. And, um, and just respond to the Lord however he seeks to have you respond to him this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. And I thank you, Father, for uh, the tremendous work that was accomplished on the cross. And Lord, I know that I'm just a fool. And that too many times I've relied on my own intellect or understanding as I think about the cross and I think about grace and mercy and all that's been poured out upon me. And therefore, I've not grasped it at all because these things have to be spiritually discerned. And so, Lord, I pray for myself that you would help me to grow in, in my understanding of the gospel and help our church to under, grow in our understanding of the gospel so that we can grow, so that we can know you more, so that we can, that we can be more holy. So God, my prayer this morning as we respond to you, Lord, that each one would respond however you lead, Lord. If it's to bring a tithe or an offering, if it's to bring a prayer request, Lord, if it's just to come up here and pray, Lord, if it's to sit where they are and just meditate upon you and your glory and your gospel, then maybe that's what they need to do. And Lord, may we all, as we sing this song, Lord, think about the words and concentrate on your glory and your majesty as we sing these things, because you are a great and awesome God. Lord, I praise you, Lord, for all that you've done in my life and in this church, and we pray now for, for you to move forward with us this week and all that we do. We want to be people of power who are willing to share this gospel truth with whoever we come encounter with. We pray all this by the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand if you would as Dennis leads us in a closing song.